I learned from a brilliant investor when I was a really, really young kid. He said, David, I'm going to die long before you, but I don't want my advice to die. So always remember, no such thing is too early, only too late. And I've never forgotten that since I was 14 years old. And I practice it. And it means in this case, don't let a mess ensue. Don't get into the studio and you're working there for two months and then you bring up, hey guys, uh, when am I getting my first paycheck? And then on the flip side, don't be so early that you jump the gun and you're making assumptions. So you really have to get a sense and a feel for like, what's the right time? When is everybody expecting to go to the table, get the business stuff over with? Because the crux of a music business deal usually has a lot of creative elements to it. And when those creative elements are flowing and they're creating the value of what the deal is there to protect in the first place, you don't want the business stuff getting in the way. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. David Frangioni's on the show today. David is one of the most eclectic people I've ever met. He juggles what probably amounts to three or four full-time careers in music and entertainment, all at the same time. He's the current publisher of Modern Drummer magazine. He has also been the music technologist for Aerosmith for over 30 years, and his past clients include The Rolling Stones, Ringo Starr, Elton John, Sting, Journey, Styx, Kiss, Ozzy Osbourne, Phil Collins, Shakira, Cher, and many other iconic performers. When he worked with Ozzy, David appeared on Ozzy's reality TV series, The Osbournes. If you go to his website, davidfrangioni.com, you can see testimonials from Steven Tyler, Brian Adams, Paul Stanley of Kiss, and Ozzy, all praising David's skills in the recording studio. David also designs and builds custom professional recording studios, and even built Steven Tyler's personal studio. And on top of all of these endeavors, in his spare time, he writes books. His book, Clint Eastwood Icon, The Essential Film Art Collection, was published in a second edition in 2018. He's also the author of the 2018 book, Crash, The World's Greatest Drum Kits, and is now working on a biography entitled No Plan B. But perhaps the most impressive thing about David is his work with charities. He donates the profits from his book sales to charities that help kids through music and music education. David works with charities like Musicians on Call, where musicians play room-to-room -room at children's hospitals. He is also the founder of the Frangioni Foundation, with a mission to engage, teach, inspire, heal, and enrich the lives of young people through the power of music. So let's jump right into my talk with drummer, music technologist, and philanthropist, David Frangioni. David Frangioni, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time for me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. Great to be here, everyone. Yeah, well, uh, I've done some research on you and your background, and, and there is so much to unpack. Your uh, bio is, is just amazingly eclectic and layered. So let me start off by just asking you to tell us what was your calling in terms of uh, finding the drums as your instrument of choice? You know, I wish I knew. Um, it's, you know, if we go even before I was born, my, my parents, um, my dad was in World War II. They got married right, they met and got married right after that. All they wanted was a family there of Italian descent. 
and uh, family was everything to them. And it took them almost 20 years of trying to have children. They had my brother, my older brother, by three years. They don't know how or why they could have kids, but they just all of a sudden had my brother. Then they had me three years later. And in that process of my being very, very young, like literally a year, a year and a half, somewhere drums showed up around the house. I don't know if it's because I was banging on things and giving them an inkling that that was an interest or if they brought it to me. I wish they were still alive uh, that I could ask them and I wish I had asked them back then. But it's just in my blood. It's from that young of an age. There's a picture of me playing the drums at 18, 19 months old. And then I was diagnosed at age two with retinoblastoma, which is cancer of the eye. And of course, my family was riveted. Uh, they were, it was, things would never be the same again on top of you know, dealing with the cancer and, and the life-threatening nature of it. They had to remove, the doctors had to remove my right eye. So I've been blind in one eye ever since. They put a prosthetic in. It made for a very, very challenging childhood and to some extent life. And um, I just worked really hard and followed my passion to, you know, pursue everything that I really wanted to do in life and not let anything hold me back. And I got those values as well from my mom and dad. Well, it sounds like, David, that you were introduced to music very early in life, but it wasn't just how early in life you started playing drums. It was also in a time that was a, a very formative experience for you in terms of basically battling, you know, battling to survive. You think that that played a role in how ingrained music was into your, your psyche and your, your being? Yes. And I, I think that, and I also think that it played a huge role in my approach to life, which is really, you can sum it up in three words, which is do it now. Yeah. Um, I think that that's the combination that was embedded as a result of the trauma, as a result of my youth, my really earliest years uh, that still are, you know, that's still with me today. So the, the other part of your biography that I read, um, and I read a lot, there's a lot out there, uh, that you, you actually started as an entrepreneur in music at the age of 16. Can you tell us more about that? Well, uh, it was even before that. I mean, when I started playing the drums, um, I was playing on phone books and tabletops and everywhere else. I was taking drum lessons before I even had a drum kit. And um, I got very serious about wanting to be a good drummer. And my parents were very focused on using education as, a, as an important tool to, to being a good drummer, to being good at anything, really. So I was taking lessons, studying in school, drumming, joining every band and, and every opportunity I had in school, and then also trying to form bands with neighborhood kids and kids that I heard about referrals. So by the time I was 12, I was actually out there playing in bands pretty regularly, 13, 14 years old, booking my own bands, calling clubs that I wasn't even old enough to get into, uh, trying to play at school dances, like anywhere I could play, I wanted to. And then what happened around 16, 17 years old is I started to transition from wanting to be the world's greatest drummer, which I was a long way from becoming, uh, but that was my goal, and um, to being into technology. And I found technology through drumming, and I took to technology as much as I had taken to drums, where I was just really passionate about it, had a real drive towards it, pursued it with a great intensity, and, uh, and tried to learn a tremendous amount about it, and got to the point where within a year, I was able to 
open uh, MIDI consulting business. And that was really my, that was like the start of what I would call successful and somewhat substantive, uh, you know, uh, small businesses. That was my first small business. And about what year was that when you started the MIDI consulting? Like 86, 87. And so for our listeners that don't know what MIDI is, what, what is that an acronym for and, and what is it? MIDI is an acronym for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And it's a, it's a programming language. It's a protocol for all instruments, electronic instruments, to communicate over the same standard. So prior to the introduction of MIDI MIDI, you had Roland put out a device and the only thing it could talk to either rhythmically or trigger notes or whatever it would be, um, would be another Roland device. They'd all have some kind of proprietary synchronization protocol. Yamaha would do the same thing. Oberheim would do the same thing, et cetera. So MIDI comes along. And now all of a sudden, if every manufacturer puts a MIDI jack and implements the MIDI protocol into the device, now you can have everything talking to everything. So when I really started discovering that coupled with triggering drums and expanding my my palette of what could be done through playing the drums and programming uh, drum machines, it just was it was and is an absolute limitless universe. And your imagination tries to catch up to all of the powerful tools that you have and the possibilities. And uh, that's just incredibly inspiring. I mean, it just, it's, it truly is limitless. So let's go back a little bit and talk about your experience in bands at the age of um, 12 and 13. And what were your parents thinking about this, um, these activities that are pretty, pretty cutting edge and um, adventurous for a 12 year old? I know. I, I look back and they were the most supportive, loving parents. We had very little means, blue collar. My dad was a meat cutter, loved to cook. Uh, my mom was a legal secretary. Uh, you know, they didn't have any money. They they just had, uh, you know, they had what was important, which was love and, and family values. And, um, and it really taught me the definition of gratitude and humility coming from nothing and seeing how hard they work and worked their whole lives until the, till they passed away, really, they were working. And, um, but they had, you know, a support mechanism for me and a love and I guess push, if you will, like to make me better um, that I don't even understand to this day because I can't imagine how they let me play clubs that young. Uh, and let me play and do what I did. Thank God I was a good kid. I've never in my life had a puff of a cigarette, a drink, a drug of any kind from marijuana to whatever you want, just nothing. So I have no substances in my body of any kind other than I love to eat and uh, I probably don't eat the healthiest all the time. But but as far as any kind of drugs or alcohol or smoke, it never happened. So I think that was a huge factor in when I wanted to go out and play and I would be in some of these dicey environments. Um, I mean, they always cared and they were on top of where I was and what I was doing, but there's no question. They were very, very lenient and, and forgiving, whereas uh, most parents would never let me do what I did. And fortunately, I made them proud. I didn't get into trouble. I didn't, you know, hang out at the clubs or do anything. You know, I just, I just wanted to play. 
you know, I think I was just really lucky that my parents let me and trusted me enough to do that. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like your passion for playing and performing and learning was pretty pure because, you know, putting myself in the shoes of, uh, you know, a 12 year old drummer who's actually playing clubs, I can see myself getting pulled into the, the mystique of the whole lifestyle, you know, the alcohol, cigarettes, you know, the drugs. Oh, it was there. It was there. I just hated it. Fortunately for me, whatever's in my brain, it was such an instant turnoff. Hmm. As soon as I smelled smoke or alcohol and saw the environments that I was playing in, uh, you know, I'm on the stage, right? Even though these are small divey places, I'm on the stage and I can see the crowd in front of me or in a lot of cases, lack thereof, but the, the chairs and tables in front of me and the bartenders. And um, I just was so turned off. And, um, and then later, as I got a little older, that turnoff was coupled with a really intense desire and focus. You know, I was just able to learn early on uh, about working hard and having values and, and a work ethic. And uh, that's really served me my whole life. And I got that from my parents, of course, that Nothing will be accomplished if you don't put the work in. Uh, if you don't, if you're not smart about it, if you don't have the you know education and, and background to really be prepared to you know go against whatever challenge you have and go for the goals that you want to accomplish, it really comes from uh, a foundation. Yeah, there, there's this concept of um, ten thousand hours, and, and I've I've read about. I subscribe to it. Yeah, and and it sounds like you started your ten thousand hours really early at the age of maybe two, and so by the time you you are sixteen and you've played the clubs and you've grinded out a lot of the the work that just the daily grind of a uh, a club musician, you you accomplished that ten thousand hours and became you know very very competent in uh, drumming and performing way earlier than most people. That's what it sounds like anyway. Well, it's true. It was a blessing. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Malcolm Godwell and, and uh, you know, the 10,000-hour philosophy I agree with. I've, I probably, you know, I've talked about this before. I think I have three 10,000-hour uh, businesses that I could say. And, and you're right, drumming and performing and being a part of that is one of them. And, of course, technology would be another one. Um, and then developing artists and the music business side of things, which is all kind of one wheelhouse, uh, would be a third one. And so I think that, um, you know, that's, I think it's important if you really want to be good at it and be able to grow even further than that. You know, anything that we want to be good at, it never has an end zone, right? So, no matter how far you take it, no matter how many hit songs or or great artists or great business deals or whatever it is that you keep in track of to see how your goals are going and how your successes are going, there's no point where it's like, okay, I've done it all. I've accomplished it all. I'm the best player or the best businessman or whatever. It's It never ends. So I think that the 10,000 hours is huge to get to some real milestones and be able to accomplish some some big successes, you know, that's really still part of the journey as opposed to like, okay, I hit 10,000 hours. Now I'm good. There's no such thing as that really. in all of the things that we, that we have to accomplish in life. Yeah. Especially with the changing landscape, the way that we went from 
analog to digital from the 70s to the 80s. And it sounds like you stayed very tuned in to the technology side of music so that by the mid 80s, you become this, according to Brian Adams, uh, this MIDI guru. What was so important about the digital technology that changed the musical landscape in the 1980s? It was the beginning of eternity. You know, we're, we're always going to have that as the beginning of, of a sea change that will keep developing forever, um, that now there is a common unified standard and it's, uh, you know, it's been used and adopted by every manufacturer and everybody. And um, it really was breakthrough. And to this day, of course, it's taken for granted because it's been around for a while now. But back then it was so cutting edge. And um, I was working with a lot of manufacturers, software developers, you know, Pro Tools, which back then was sound designer, then sound tools, then Pro Tools, working with opcode and passport and alchemy sample editors and just so many so many pieces of technology that just formed the basis from which so much of the powerful you know studio tools that we have now were really born from that and i think that was a really really amazing time that that ended up in hindsight now becoming the beginning of of you know digital recording and music technology that we'll have forever and, and for our listeners who aren't very savvy technologically and, and don't really know the difference between digital and, and analog, um, back in the, the 60s and 70s, we really were dealing with actual tape, right? I mean, we're talking about like tape recordings of a drum track and a vocal track that you're and you're splicing things together. Yep. Um, when the digital age hits, you can completely dispense with all of the tape and and really become more productive is that a, a fair way to put it well we have to we have to add one little piece to that which is the tape the analog tape was first you know it's mono stereo four track eight track it grew in tracks to ultimately 24 track was really the the maximum and then you would synchronize 24 track machines together to get more tracks and then what happened is tape stayed but went to digital tape oh okay so we had digital tape in the 80s which was the 80s were again another huge time period where digital tape was taking over for analog tape both formats very expensive very much you needed like technology person to install and maintain then by the early 90s we had affordable modular digital multi-tracks and now everybody can have digital recording at their house using at the time ADATs and Tascam DA88s. Some people credit me with building the first home studio. It was all based around those kinds of technologies, late 80s, early 90s. And then as the 90s went on, digital took a huge turn. And I'm very excited that I was able to be a part of all of this at the cutting edge, at the development side of it. Uh, it took a huge turn to where Pro Tools went from a sidecar kind of technology where you'd have the tape rolling and then you'd have a Pro Tools rig off to the side and you could use it to edit and fly things around and kind of augment what you were doing. And then by like 97, 98, all of a sudden Pro Tools became the replacement for all of these tape console combinations and technologies. And that's how, you know, how we're using it today. But that's that's where it started and it's evolved from there, of course, quite a bit. Yeah. 
I interviewed um, Richard Patrick from the band Filter, and he was a former guitar player for Nine Inch Nails back in the 80s and early 90s. And he was talking about how the, the recording industry completely changed when people were able to basically show up with, you know, Pro Tools and a couple of mics and lay down tracks in, in their house or even in a studio. And the cost of recording went dramatically down and sort of the barrier to get into that space went dramatically down. He, and his an anecdote that he brought up was that the, the studio albums that Nine Inch Nails and later Filter would record uh, would cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, to put together. Um, and then he, he witnessed Eminem in another studio, you know, knocking out an album within a matter of a couple of days for cheap. And, and my question to you is, what have we gained and what have we lost with removing that barrier to recording an album and having it sound pretty good? I mean, even, even someone who doesn't really know what they're doing, it seems like can put out something that at least is passable um, of course, they're not going to get to, you know, upper echelon sound quality like you accomplish. But um, what are the pros and the cons of having that barrier lowered or re- removed by technology? Well, the pros are that you have these incredible tools that are available to everybody. So you're not limited by budgets, only creativity. You know, the tools have become available and they've the, the price of, of great quality tools it just keeps getting more and more and more cost effective. You know, I always say, though, it's the archer and not the arrow. Um, so the tools are important, but it's always going to be based on whose hands those tools are in. Um, and I've always been a big proponent of recording and music technology being as cost effective as it can be so that everybody can use it. I think that's, you know, that's a huge breakthrough. When when I look back on when I started, I would have to go to very high-end, very well-equipped, what I'll call even world-class studios in Boston, where I'm from, and seek out some opportunity to sit there and learn, right? Because you got a half a million dollar console or more. You've got a Synclavier, which is one to $200,000, uh, or a Fairlight, which was the same price. And you've got a tape machine that's fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand. And I mean, like bef- you blinked your eyes, and it's you're in a million dollar room. Yeah, lexicon, outboard gear, and all these different things. And so, how do you learn it if it's cost a million dollars just to to own it and spend time with it? It really, you really had to cut your teeth. You had to spend a lot of time for free, just wanting to be a fly on the wall. And, and it was almost you were lucky. You felt lucky to be chosen to work for free. You felt lucky because you had access. Uh, I would go to the music stores all the time and I would just, you know, befriend people at the music stores because that was another essentially control room, if you will, full of equipment that was not necessarily accessible or affordable because we're still in the 80s now and uh, stuff is very expensive for the most part. But I needed to learn the gear. And in order to learn the gear, you've got to spend time with it. And then after you learn it, you have to apply it musically in a workflow that's conducive to a session. And the better you get at that, the better your clients are going to be. And by the time I got the gig with Aerosmith in 89, started working with them extensively, even through to this day, you know, I was ready for it. I was prepared and I was able to bring 
workflows and, and ideas and innovations to their creative process that they hadn't had prior to my being on board. And, you know, that combination, you know, we did pump and get a grip and big ones and nine lives and just push play and uh, self sanity and, you know, just a myriad of what ended up being really successful, well-received rock music. Nice. So what, what is your official credit on those albums? Is it audio engineer? Um, technologist, pre-production engineer, in-house engineer, Pro Tools, MIDI. It's just, a, you know, I was their one-man show, you know, in the studio until they got to all the writing was done, all the offline work was done, and then they would go and they would record with a producer for a few months to just finish putting the tracks down. Until Just Push Play. Then Just Push Play was done entirely in-house. Marty Fredrickson and Mark Hudson produced it. Um, we did it at Joe and Stevens. We got an SSL brought in. God bless Mike Shipley. He's no longer with us, but at the time, he mixed it. And Joe had an SSL brought into a house on his property temporarily. Uh, at that time, this we're going back to 99, 2000-ish. Uh, at that time, the hybrid of Pro Tools and a large format console was still being utilized, uh, much more so than it is today. So I was just, you know, the go-to guy for whatever they needed. Yeah. So what what was that process like, the, the workflow and the actual work itself? When you have a band that is as successful as uh, Aerosmith is, uh, with all of these personalities, there's a lot at stake for everybody. Uh, it's expensive to bring everybody together. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of pressure. So when you show up to a gig like that, what is expected of you in terms of what you're contributing to the process? How much time every day? I mean, are, are you basically just saying, all right, here's my life for two weeks or two months or, it, you know, I'm at your disposal? Or is it, I, I just don't understand how that... Um, how that dynamic would work with a band like Aerosmith. Well, it's been 31 years. So I guess it's here's my life for 31 years and counting. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, um, you know, th their process in the record making time, as I would define it, which in my tenure was pumped to just push play uh, because they really did only two records since then. They did Honkin' on Bobo, which I wasn't involved in um, day to day and um, music from another dimension, which they did in L.A., uh, six years ago or so. So they really haven't made a lot of records like we were doing it from 89 to 2001. And that was the heyday for my time with them every day. Since then, I've just been doing special projects and, you know, just staying in the family. But that was the heavy lifting. And the process during that time was about a year of writing where we'd be in Joe's studio or Steven's studio Different songwriters would come in when they wanted to collaborate. The rest of the time, it would be Joe, Stephen, and then the band, of course, would come in as well and collaborate. But Joe and Stephen were really the main writers. And I would run the console and the computer and all that stuff. And then they would go pick a producer, spend a couple of months recording the record, mixing it. And then they'd come back to me and we'd be in, again, Joe or Stephen's. And we would start doing, you know, the liners for radio, 
whatever promotional things. There would be be doing, you know, edits and radio mixes and remixes and CD single mixes and mixes for movies. I mean, I remember Mrs. Doubtfire needed a dude looks like a lady at it. Like there was just with that band, they had so much going on and they still do, but, but then they, they did as well. Um, you know, there was never a day off really. Uh, while I was working with them, I was also building my company audio one so that I could build studios, which I still to this day is one of my core businesses is building recording studios, digital facilities, uh, all things, you know, studio related or acoustic related, as well as home theaters and home automation systems, which is what audio one does. And that started in the nineties. So I was kind of doing both in parallel so I could have my day to day where it was all just strictly me, but then I could take my vision and my, you know, my passion for wanting to do more rooms than just the ones I could do myself and start a company based on that. And now we can be doing studios all over the world. I could be working with Aerosmith in the studio and I have guys putting together based on my, you know, view, ideas and uh, initiative, uh, you know, additional studios and rigs and that kind of thing. So that, that was the beginning of everything that we see today in, in uh, my world. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Thanks. And now back to the interview. So is, was there a moment in time that you can remember where your passion for recording and audio and technology went from a hobby to a career? And, you know, was it when you got a call from Errol Smith? Was it a, a, a previous artist that you worked with that kind of flipped on the switch that, oh, this is actually something that is going to be, I'm going to make a career out of this? Um, you know, I never really thought of any of what I'm doing as a hobby, even at the beginning. So I found electronics through drumming. And although you could call it a hobby at that time, because I was just doing gigs around Boston and the bottom of what you would call a professional drummer's career, as far as gigs, trying to make it, but hadn't made it. And, uh, you know, just really finding electronics for that reason, but always taking it very, very seriously. And then when I started my consulting business um, and I was, you could call that like turning pro for technology, I built up credits. I was networking, living in Boston. I was networking all around New England as well as New York. And there were a lot of things going on in New York. I was making a lot of phone calls because remember, this is pre-internet. So there's no emails or or any kind of internet at all. Um, so you make phone calls, you send faxes, you get on a plane and fly somewhere, you knock on somebody's door, um, send FedExes. Uh, you know, that was all very manual labor, just networking and trying to build a clientele. And then I, with Aerosmith, I got referred to them and um, just went in for one small project and, and ended up never leaving. <laughs> And I see you worked with Ozzy Osbourne and Brian Adams and Cher. Yep, 10 years with Ozzy. Brian, great friend still to this day. You know, we're in touch. And I'm very blessed, you know, 
to I never in a million years, even in my wildest dreams, thought that I could have the career that I've been able to have and have now. But it just proves that with hard work and commitment that, you know, a lot of things are possible that you don't even realize. What what have you learned about the business side of this in terms of working with artists like Kiss and Ozzy Osbourne and Cher and and Aerosmith in terms of um, protecting yourself through contracts and agents and things like that versus like the Shep Gordon approach, which you know, I, I watched the Shep Gordon uh, documentary. Supermensch. Yeah, Supermensch. And great, great documentary and, and, and just a fascinating man. Um, but yeah. he, he talks about how I don't think he's ever had a contract with any of his clients. It's it, Everything is just, you know, we're going to do this thing together and it, we're going to treat each other fairly. So what kind of um, balance have you struck in that respect because it sounds like you have these long important relationships with artists and you're friends with them but you also have to make a living and you have to protect yourself and can you tell our listeners about that dynamic well yeah you you have to be aware of that and practice it you know it's certainly very important i'm a believer in everything being in writing so i always work with contracts and written agreements You also have to understand timing and the appropriate time and place. So I wouldn't bring a contract up to an artist the first day that we're going to start creating something or, you know, you got to know like when is the moment where you work out what is this arrangement. Of course, it should always be done based on a spoken agreement and you capture that in writing. I'm not a big fan of sending emails to people telling them what my ideas are or or asking them what a certain deal should be in replacement of a conversation. In, in addition to a conversation, I'm a huge proponent of that. But as a way of not confronting, I don't think that's the best way. I think artists like to talk about what's what the deal is going to be or or their handlers will talk about it it doesn't sometimes the artist doesn't want to talk about it but there is somebody responsible for talking about it and so you've just got to make sure that things are clear i was you know as i was learning and and as you talked about as you know here today i started very young so i made all kinds of mistakes had no clue you know when i was a kid when i was a teenager i don't have a clue about contracts and written agreements. And of course, there weren't even emails or anything to send. So everything would have had to have been a fax or a, uh, or an in-person contract. So I learned all that. You know, you learn it the hard way. And um, I think the lesson that we'd like to have the listeners today take away is that capture everything in writing and just do it at the right time. Uh, in a traditional business deal, timing is always everything. But there's a much greater window and and understanding and latitude in a traditional business deal. Like if you were going to buy a piece of real estate, you know, it's like having closing documents and having everything in writing is a given. You know, you don't have to worry about like, when do I show somebody the contract for a real estate transaction? It's it's the opposite. It's like, when am I going to see the contract? In the music business, even though everything's based around contracts as well, it's a very different dynamic because Everybody knows that there's an agreement that has to be in place, but unlike a traditional business deal, there's all these emotions that are paramount, 
right? Every business deal has emotions, but the music business has kind of prevailing emotions where if you ask an artist at the wrong time for either the contract itself or for a certain condition or or a pay increase or whatever, you ask them at the wrong time, you could lose the gig. Yeah. Right? So it's a very, very different world in that regard that I'd like everybody to come away with today with that understanding. It's like, hey, when you're making deals in anything to do with the music business, be sure to be very considerate and sensitive towards what are the dynamics going on here? Who do I present documents to? When should I present the document? And I always, I learned from a brilliant investor when I was a really, really young kid. He said, David, I'm going to die long before you, but I don't want my advice to die. So always remember, no such thing is too early, only too late. And I've never forgotten that since I was 14 years old and I practice it. And it means in this case that don't let a mess ensue. Don't get into the studio and you're working there for two months and then you bring up, hey guys, uh, when am I getting my first paycheck? Um, you know, like, and, and then on the flip side, don't be so early that you jump the gun and you're making assumptions. So you really have to get a sense and a feel for like, what's the right time? When is everybody expecting to go to the table, get the business stuff over with? Because the crux of a music business deal usually has a lot of creative elements to it. And when those creative elements are flowing and they're creating the value of what the deal is there to protect in the first place, you don't want the business stuff getting in the way. So you do have to have a balance of both. Was that kind of clear? Did you understand that? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it sounds like too that the the people that you're dealing with, these artists, they're, they're people that are being asked to do and give a lot of themselves by a lot of different people. All the time. They're being pulled in many different directions. And if you have to be sensitive to that, because you don't want to come off as just another one of these people that's like, hey, what's in it for me? Can you do this for me? Let's, you know. Uh, so you have to be d- diplomatic and know your audience. That's it. No, that's perfectly, Brian, that's perfectly recapped. And that's really what people have to take from this. And if they do, just that one bit of advice we've been talking about, you'll have something of huge value for your entire life and career. And the, um, the Audio One business that you have of uh, building these studios, it, do you find that the, the studio business has changed or been hurt by the advent of you know, these basically laptop recording studios that people are able to put together? Um, has that hurt your business? Or do you, are you adapting in a way to kind of um, still be able to be in that space and, and be successful in terms of building studios? Well, I'm building what you would classify as real studios. So right. they're, they're proper spaces to make records or do podcasts or do production, whatever it is that, that's needed. And a proper space has good isolation. It has good acoustics inside of it. It has, um, you know, a myriad of elements that define it as a professional workplace. And that's something that's always going to be needed. There's no question that people might have been inclined a little bit more years ago um, to go with a simpler setup if, like they can now, having a choice. 
but it doesn't negate the fact or change the fact much that um, that you still need pro studios in a lot of applications. Yeah. So that's that's what I do, and the demand's still there. It's it's one of those things that there'll always be a demand for it. You know, you've got you got colleges and you've got houses of worship and you've got professional producers and songwriters and artists. All of these spaces are, you know, need proper creative spaces. They need recording spaces. They need acoustically treated spaces. There's no way around that. And a lot of people don't want to go to a commercial external room to do it, or it's not even feasible for them to do that. Like in the case of a college, you know, you know, you don't want to have to send somebody off campus to another place to go to a quote unquote studio. You want to have that right there, you know, under control. So there'll always be a need for what I do with studios. I think we've seen the heyday pass. There was definitely like with everything that has to do with technology and, and cutting edge, you know, sea changes, you know, there's always a, a time where it's a big rush, like uh, everybody's excited and it's new. Uh, so that phase has passed, but um, it's leveled off and there's plenty of people and plenty of clients that need studios. Well, the uh, it's, It sounds like the the core elements of what it takes to have a, an album sound good are never going to change in terms of acoustics and, you know, insulating one room from another. And that, that'll always be there. And then right. now we have this global pandemic happening, which I would imagine would even create more demand for building home studios. Yeah. Uh, because people are going to be like, hey, I need to get work done, but I'm not going to go travel all the way across Los Angeles to go to some studio where, you know, and you can have control over that environment and, um, and get professional quality audio out of your own home studio. You're right. And it would seem to me that that would be what happens. You know, it still has to, that chapter, you know, we're at page one of, so we'll see uh, how it plays out, but it would make perfect sense that uh, in a time like this, where there's tremendous amount of quarantining and isolation going on, uh, that people would want to have those kinds of spaces. And certainly all the studios I build are private and they're uh, very safe, of course. You know, they're just, they're a very controlled environment, uh, unlike a commercial space. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and, you know, how it plays out. So the, the artists that you've worked with, um, I, I'll just go through the list that I, I've done on my research here. The Rolling Stones, uh, Ringo Starr, Elton John, Sting, Journey, Styx, Phil Collins, Shakira, Rascal Flatts, um, Chick Corea. The, the list goes on. Are any of these artists people that were influences to you when you were growing up so that you were starstruck in any way when you were working with them or had you sort of moved past that that starstruck stage of uh, that everybody has i think when you finally were working with these artists well many of them were huge influences on me virtually everybody you mentioned on that that list and a lot more uh as well who i've had the chance to work with and who have been ins inspirations for me and some that i have not had the chance to work with that have been inspirations to me yeah, I mean, 100%. And, and you know, I, I was starstruck at the beginning because especially when I started with Aerosmith, like the first time I worked with Elton John, I mean, these guys w were and still are musical heroes of mine. And so 
it was, you know, it was very exciting, really. But I think coming from such humble beginnings, when I met them, I was a fan, but I was also so focused and so grateful to be there that I, I really wanted to contribute and wanted to be a part of it. I just was taught really early on by my parents. It's like, you either go in there and you get a picture with them, which at that time was a big deal, right? Because people didn't even really carry cameras and there were no cell phones. But the 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 concept is is the point of the story. It's like you can go in and get a picture with them, get their autograph, shake their hand, or you can go in there and be a peer of theirs. And you can go in and you can earn your stripes. And later on, if it works out, you'll get all the pictures you want. But bigger than that is you'll be able to call them clients of yours, friends of yours, collaborators of yours, and that's much greater than any kind of fan thing. That's what they taught me, right? That, was, that had to be learned and understood and, and you know, I had to be aware of that. And, um, and, and I was. And so uh, I was able to, you know, just go in there and get the job done for all these different artists and not really be frozen or put off or intimidated uh, if anything, excited and motivated and always driven. You know, I just always had a lot of drive and ambition. You know, they always say everything works out for the best, whether we like it or not. What happens is what happens. And, you know, we got to make the best of that and see it for what it is because it's the only thing we got is whatever happened. And when I look back, coming from very little uh, as far as having means and, and opportunities, of course, no connections, that was really hard, but it ended up being amazing jet fuel for the future. So it was like it was almost like a necessary thing that like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna come from nowhere and nothing, but through hard work and through focus and passion and consistency, you're going to get somewhere. In, in a field that you love, not not a traditional like grinded out job, like I hate to be here, but in something that you actually love every day and are very blessed to do. And I think that because of that, you know, that had a huge impact on when I was working with these artists. I was thinking about, to some extent, like, I got to keep this gig. Like, I want to keep the gig, but I also have to keep the gig, <laughs> right? So, like, you know, I always – I was – been working on a book for a while. It'll be my fourth book, if you can believe it. I already have three books out, but it's um, it's called No Plan B, and essentially, it's kind of the story of my life. Where you know, I never looked at anything like, if this doesn't work out, then I'll do this other thing. No, I always looked at it like this is going to work out. Right. There is no other thing, <laughs> and 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 I was half fooling myself and half absolutely right. Um, and so I just never wanted to go back to just the, the type of environment and upbringing of, you know, hanging on the streets, seeing where the kids, kids didn't go anywhere and having very few options, not practicing your passion, kind of getting stuck in a job like that whole blue collar suburbia, lower class kind of upbringing, um, just, I didn't like it, you know, and I wanted to be on a stage. I wanted to play. I wanted to be a great drummer. I wanted to make music. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to do artistic projects and make deals and work with my idols and just try to, you know, accomplish something bigger in my lifetime than anybody previously had in my family and bigger than even myself 
in say like writing the books to where after I'm gone, there's going to be three books for people to read that wouldn't be here if I hadn't been alive. That's a bigger legacy to me than, you know, just doing projects and just working on certain things. Like same thing with the music. If I look at Get a Grip, you know, over 20 million copies sold, you know, being a part of when Crying was written and and Crazy and um, Living on the Edge and, you know, all these songs that are going to way outlast all of us here today on this podcast and listening. And to me, that was the contribution that I wanted to make and what I work on making every day. Nice. You know, it's, it's interesting that you you have this book title, um, No Plan B, because I, I was interviewed on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I think it'll be coming out shortly, uh, about they, they were asking about lessons that I learned talking to folks like you, because I talk to artists, um, musicians, and writers, and uh, filmmakers, and they're like, well, what's the common denominator with these people that you talk to, these creatives? How do they get there? How do they become successful? And even though I didn't use the words no plan B, um, I, I, that was the idea of my answer because that's what I've gleaned from talking to passionate artists. They don't go into it thinking, well, let's just see if this works out. Not at all. Maybe I can, maybe I can make a living out of this. It's just there are no other options. This is what I'm doing. This is my passion. This is what I care about. And whether I think when you have that attitude, you're going to find a way to earn a living from that. You may not be a superstar. You may not be, uh, you know, platinum album artist or a, an Oscar-winning film director. Even though I've I've interviewed an Oscar-winning film director, and that was that was her attitude. Uh, but it, it's it's really profound how common that that characteristic is in people just like you, David. And I'm glad that you brought that up. And I, I would love to read that book when it comes out. <laughs> well, start with Clint Eastwood Icon and Crash, the world's greatest drum kits, which are the two that are out now of my three. <laughs> so you can start with those two. But thank you for that. Um, I'm glad that, you know, that, that I'm following in a path that's consistent with other people that uh, have achieved things. And, um, you know, when I finish that book, I think it'll add value. You know, the key thing for me is, just always bring more value than you take. Yeah. So tell me about the Clint Eastwood focus and the, the, why you wrote those books. Well, I, I have a really great Clint Eastwood film poster and memorabilia collection. And I just felt like I wanted to share it in a way that was impactful and, and kind of write a book that I would want to read if I were into Clint Eastwood films or movie memorabilia or movie posters or all of the above. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that book. Uh, I got it published by a great publisher, Insight Editions, and um, got Clint involved, and he thought it was cool, so I got his blessing. You know, it's it's all the money goes to charity from the book, and then I followed it up. My publisher, Insight, came back to me, said, look, Clint Eastwood Icon was a success. How about we do another one? So we did a revised and expanded edition of that in 2018, which is out now, Clint Eastwood Icon, revised and expanded. Clint also thought that was cool. And then the publisher came to me and said, all right, well, we've done the Clint Eastwood thing twice in 10 years. It's done really well. What else are you thinking? And of course, being a drummer and having a drum set collection and a museum is part of my foundation, Frangioni Foundation. It's a nonprofit to uh, help kids, uh, you know, get music when they need it most. I uh, wrote Crash the World's Greatest Drum Kits and 
that's, you know, uh, another book that's just coffee, both, all of them coffee table books that you can really enjoy that subject in a way that if you want to read it, there's a lot of cool information. But if you just want to look at a book, a lot of times I just like to look at pictures and look at ideas visually and not necessarily have a deep read. And so my books are based around either of those. You can go deep and read all and become an expert in different aspects, or you can just have fun and look at the pictures and it never gets old. And they're available on Amazon. They're available at Barnes and Noble. So everywhere you would buy a book, you can uh, find Clint Eastwood Icon and um, Crash, the world's greatest drum kits. And the money for all of them, not just Clint Eastwood's books, but Crash goes to charity. That and th- that charity um, th- of involving children and getting music and invo- uh, kids involved in music sounds so important right now because of the cut in funding in arts and in music, especially uh, that has been going on for decades. Yep, and um, it is just a it's a real shame that we aren't seeing more arts programs actually have additional funding let's let's keep them at the same funding or add more as opposed to cutting the funding it's true because you know we're we're really suffering in the um yeah talk about education i i just want to thank you for focusing on the arts with your charity for kids and, and music especially for kids um i think it adds so much value to to their lives and and they carry it with them for um you know, throughout adulthood and they pass it on themselves. And I know we're running out of time. So I, I want to ask you one last question. There's so much more to talk about. Maybe we can have a, a second chat down the road. Let's do a volume two. It's been great, Brian. And the audience is great. And I think we have a lot more we can share in number two. So let, let me ask you one question. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this because Neil Peart was a huge influence for me growing up. Rush was, I think, my favorite band starting in, in uh, you know, grade school all the way through college and, and beyond. Um, I have one poster in my weight room, and it's a Rush poster. And I know you have an article on your website about his passing and what he meant to you. Can you tell our listeners uh, what Neil Peart meant to you and how he influenced you as an artist and a drummer? Well, Neil Peart was a huge, huge influence, has been my whole life and career. I, I first saw him when I was in high school. I think I was 15, probably, uh, you know, sophomore maybe in high school, very, very young and had already been listening to his records and it was the moving pictures tour. And uh, the the funny thing is I just remember every, normally the concert, you want the first 10 rows, but at Rush concerts, as I would learn at that time and going forward, the seats closest, the seats on the side closest to Neil, even if you were in the balcony, were the ones that sold out first. Uh, so it was, it was really funny. And so I got pretty good seats. And I remember him first time I ever saw him live and doing his drum solo and just not believing what I saw. Like it was hard to even comprehend where to start after hearing and seeing him play live. It just showed me how unlimited the instrument can be when you really master it and how far you can take it. And it was like when I saw Buddy Rich or heard Carl Palmer for the first time, you know, you struggle with practicing harder or quitting, you know, when you, when you see and hear somebody that phenomenal that's taken the instrument 
to a place that never mind you never even imagined like you didn't even it wasn't even in your thought process and neil peart represented that and that's to his credit to be one of the icons and inspirations forever Mm -hmm. and to be in that hallowed group of drummers with you know carl palmer and buddy rich and dave weckel and you know vinnie calayuda and just the the greatest drummers joe morello louis belson the greatest drummers that'll ever live was you know a real testament and we're gonna miss him and uh neil was so extraordinary he, he left us with so much content educational material articles course all the recorded works tremendous amount of really really well done video concerts that rush put out that neil was a big part of so you literally could spend however old you are right now listening to this podcast you could spend the rest of your life just going through all of the things that neil left us and uh and truly be challenged and inspired for your entire life it's it's incredible yeah and his contribution to lyrics too i mean he's such a a literate guy uh absolutely to to have that type of knowledge of of literature and and so I'm still grieving. We over will that be for a long time. Man. We really will. It's, you, you don't get over. You never really get over a loss that big. You know, you just you just find better coping mechanisms as time goes on because it's a natural healer. Well, um, I, I'm so glad that we were able to connect today. I know there's a lot going on in the world with the uh, the virus and everybody's isolating and quarantining. And and here you are uh, spending time with me and and my listeners are really going to appreciate it too. Um, So thank you, David Frangioni, for your time and um, be well. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, No contact will have to be initiated physically to go to (laughs) davidfrangioni.com. It's virus-free. You're safe to go there. So anybody that wants to correspond, you can find me at davidfrangioni.com and my socials at davidfrangioni. And it's been a real honor and privilege to uh, spend the time here together with everyone. And thank you, Brian. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Dream Path Podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.